In the summer of 2001, I became the minister at a church in Decatur, Illinois. And Decatur, Illinois is kind of right smack in the middle of central Illinois. And it wasn't a long ministry by any means. It lasted about 17 months. But during those 17 months, we uh, made a lot of really cool memories. And we met a lot of people that are still part of our lives today. Um, there were two brothers in that church. Their names were Jim and Bob. And every Sunday at church, Jim and Bob, they would drive, they would come to the church first and they would, they would talk to people. And then the two of them would disappear for a little bit. And what they were doing is they would get in their car and they would drive down the street about half a mile and there was this little tiny gas station. And they would get a bunch of Pepsis, okay? And then they would come back and they would give out Pepsis to people in the church. Now, I love this because they always brought me back a Diet Coke. And it was great. I didn't even have to ask. Like, my first Sunday, like, hey, we're heading down to get a pop. You want one? I'm like, well, well sure, if you're bringing one. And they brought me a Diet Coke and I never had to ask again. And they just brought me one. It was, it was, it was awesome. And so uh, I just have this really cool memory of these two brothers literally coming in like this with fountain Pepsis, and they're just giving them out to people in, in our church. Well, not long after we moved away, I got a call from Jim. His brother, Bob, had passed away, and he had gotten sick, and it was an illness that took him really quick, and, and Kirsten and I, it was saddened to hear this news, and, and so we drove to Illinois to be with the family, and, and we stayed there for a day or two just to be a part of the funeral and to support and encourage the family. Bob was a good friend. His brother, Jim, is a very dear friend, even to this day, a very, very close, confident friend of mine. And the day after the funeral, Jim um, asked me to accompany him to the cemetery, which I was glad to do, of course. I'm just there with my friend, supporting him through the loss of his brother. And on our way to the cemetery, Jim pulled into that little gas station. And he went in, he goes, we need some Pepsi. And I'm like, well, you didn't have to say you'd ask that to me twice, okay. And so um, we went in there, and, and, and I got my Diet Coke, and he got his Pepsi. And then he grabbed another cup, and he filled it up. And he goes, this one will be for Bob. And so we, we drove to the cemetery, we walked out to the graveside where we had laid his brother to rest just the day before, and we sat down on the ground, and, and Jim took that Pepsi, and he put it right at the head of the grave, and we began to have a wonderful conversation about Bob. There were times that Jim would talk to his brother as if he was sitting there, as if he was holding the Pepsi himself, as sharing this moment with us. I, what I remember a lot from that moment is Jim would tell a story and he'd wipe a tear away. It was his way of grieving as we shared this, this moment. I, I am so thankful that Bob was a solid Christian man. I'm thankful of the promises we've been reading about in the story. I know that Bob is in heaven right now. But what got me that day and what still gets me when I attend funerals or when I officiate funerals, and I think you can probably, many of us have dealt with loss in our lives, you can relate to this moment. What got me is just the finality of the moment as we were sitting there. You know, how, how there's not a thing that any of us could do to change this scenario, and there's nothing we could do to bring them back. You know, as Christians, you know, this is the great news, the great joy and hope that we have as Christians, that there is heaven, the grave is not the end, that there is heaven, and I hope I'm not the only one who could say I'm looking forward to that incredible reunion that we're all going to have one day. It's going to be fantastic. But while on earth, 
while we're still here waiting for that day, the finality of death is one of the harder emotions that we have to navigate. You know, uh, the followers of Jesus, I believe, certainly knew this emotion very well, this feeling of finality. I think that was probably what many of them were feeling after they watched Jesus die on the cross and they took his body off, off the cross and they prepared his body and they put him in the tomb and did the things. They, didn't, they weren't able to have him fully prepared yet. That's why the women that we're going to read about go to the tomb to, to work on the body. But, but to just the finality of it all, all. I would imagine that the day after Jesus died, that Saturday, as the disciples kind of gathered and they were there together supporting one another, there had to have been some of these long stares out the window. Maybe this feeling of it's over, you know, it's the, the finality of that moment had to have been strong among the disciples. How maybe there were conversations where they were saying, remember when we did this and remember when we were sitting around the campfire that, do you remember, you remember that guy that was down by the pool and, and he couldn't walk and then Jesus healed him and there's these, these moments of great reflection. Now, of course, I'm just guessing here. I wasn't in the room with him, of course, but that this feeling of the emotion that it's, it's over and that the last three years have been an incredible journey with Jesus and what do we do now? I mean, I imagine all those emotions were going through their minds. Now, for the Pharisees, the day after Jesus died, um, you know, they had to take precautions. If you read the story, they placed guards at Jesus' tomb because they remembered that while Jesus was alive, what did he tell everybody? Hey, I'm going to raise a life in three days. And, and it kind of makes you wonder that, that maybe the Pharisees were paying a little bit more attention to Jesus' statements than the disciples were. But there, that was on Saturday. But then on Sunday morning. Something remarkable happened. Do you have your storybooks open to page 382? This is what happened on Resurrection Sunday. This is the, what we're going to read about is why we make such a big deal about Easter Sunday and why people who don't go to church any other time of the year, they will come to church on Easter. It's this right here. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Shalom brought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus's body. Very early on the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? These ladies had no idea what they were about to walk into. They were not prepared for this moment. Their biggest concern on their way to the tomb was what? Who is going to move the stone? We're like, how are we going to move this stone? That, that was their biggest concern. They had no idea that they were about to walk up upon the most significant event in the history of the world. Here's what happens next, page 382. There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. I don't, it doesn't take much imagination to know that, what that was like. This was terrifying. And it just like they became, they just froze like deer in the headlights. They didn't know what to do. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Can you imagine the moment? 
Can, can you imagine the moment, the, the movement that we're going to read about from the finality of the cross to the hope that he actually rose from the dead, this, this emotional swing that they're about to go through? So he's risen, just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then quickly, the, go quickly and tell his disciples, he is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell the, his disciples. And I just, it's one of those incredible moments. And they're still mourning Jesus' death. And, and, and what had happened is exactly what Jesus said would happen except they weren't expecting it. Now we have the lens of history, don't we? We can read the whole Bible start to finish and we can look back and go, why were these people not expecting Jesus to raise from the dead? Now that's our privilege to look back on history and go, well, if I were there, I would have known. I would have known I was going to an empty tomb. No, we wouldn't. No, we wouldn't. It was a shock, but I would have loved to have been there to see it. They they didn't fully understand what Jesus had said to them, but it's starting to click. So these Jesus went, these, these women went to the tomb. They're fully expecting to find Jesus' body, but they discover this angel sitting on top of the rolled away stone, letting them know that Jesus was indeed alive. And so they do exactly what the angel said to do. They were going to run back and they were going to tell the disciples everything that they had seen. Now we learn from Matthew's gospel. This is what the beauty of having four gospels. They give us all details to the same story. If you were to, Matthew's gospel gives us an additional detail that while they were on their way back, Jesus appeared to these women. They were the first to see the resurrected Jesus. And it's, it's a powerful thing. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 28, verse 8 through 10. But these women were the very first ones to see him. Now, when Peter hears this news, he was with John. And we love Peter, right? I, I've tried to point out these things. He's impulsive. He's the first to speak up. He's the first to jump up. He's, Peter's all of these things. Peter hears this report from these women that the tomb is empty, that they had seen Jesus, and he makes a beeline for the tomb. He's like, I got to see it with my own eyes. John goes with them, and there's this incredible account where they kind of run into the empty tomb, and, and, and they don't see anything. If you can climb into their shoes, this is what I try to do. If you ask, how do I study the Bible? I try to climb into these people's shoes. And I often will read something, and I'll close my eyes, and I'll visualize, and, and what was it like? And now having the privilege and the honor to actually be at the tomb of Jesus where all this happened, it even adds more realism to this moment as I imagined. What could they have possibly been thinking? That his body was there. And now it's not. Well, that same day, Jesus appears to two more followers who were leaving Jerusalem. They were on their way to a village called Emmaus. They didn't realize they were talking to Jesus, but eventually it did dawn on them that, oh, it was Jesus who appeared to us. And then they run back to tell the other disciples. They're like, we can't keep this to themselves. They didn't know that Jesus was appearing to other people. So they go back to tell the disciples. And then, um, th so they found the disciples and they're telling them this amazing story. The disciples are considering all the pieces of information. They're thinking about to the earthquake. They're thinking about the, the women's report of this angelic visit. 
They are reviewing, if you will, all the things that Jesus told them. It makes you wonder, like maybe some of the disciples said, well, you know what, guys? This does make sense because back on such and such day, Jesus did tell us this. You remember when Jesus said that he was going to have to die and suffer, but it come back. You know, it's starting to put some of these pieces together. The tomb was empty, and now these two followers who were on their way to Emmaus come back and say, we have seen Jesus. Look on page 387. While they were still talking about this, they're, they're talking about all the things that have happened, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. I don't know how peaceful that moment was. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. This is not the first time they mistake Jesus for a ghost. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, and I think what it's trying to communicate, they're like, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. This is amazing. I don't know if I believe it. What is going on here? I think it's more that feel in the room. Jesus asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Why is that such an important detail? Because he is alive. Ghosts don't eat. At least Casper didn't eat anything. (laughs) And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. In other words, he's saying, remember all the prophecies? And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. And all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, which we know is the Holy Spirit. Come next Sunday. You are witness of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. I would have loved to have been there. Fortunately, not all, unfortunately, not all the disciples were there. Thomas, he wasn't there. This is one of Jesus' disciples. And, and Jesus, he wasn't there when Jesus explained all this to them. He shows up after Jesus leaves. Now, can you imagine the one day you're late to the party was the day that Jesus showed up? And he walks into the room. Maybe he's got a bag of groceries. Hey, fellas, you're not going to believe it. Jesus was just here. And he doesn't believe him. He doesn't believe him. He is slow to believe. And that's why to this day, when somebody doesn't believe uh, something, then we often refer to them generically as a doubting Thomas. That's why he has this name. He doubted it. And so when we say, quit being a doubting Thomas, you ever called somebody that? Quit being a doubting Thomas. It's a direct reference to this moment when Thomas shows up a little bit late to the party and everyone says, we saw Jesus. He goes, I don't think so. I doubt it. 
And what does he say? Do you remember? Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. And what he's saying is unless I see him myself, unless I touch him, the, the, the side where they stabbed him, I want, he goes, I want to touch it. I, I, that's what it's going to take, Thomas is saying. I got to touch it. I got to see it or I'm not going to believe. And I think about Thomas. He gets criticized a lot in Scripture. He totally redeems himself, in case you haven't read the story yet. But I think a lot of us are, are like Thomas from time to time. Maybe, maybe your journey to faith is a kind of a lot like Thomas's. It, it took more than just somebody telling. You had to experience something yourself. I mean, when I think of Thomas, I, I think of that phrase, seeing is believing. That's true about Thomas. Seeing is believing. I, I was at Sam's Club a number of years ago. Sam's Club, in case you don't know, is one of my favorite places on the planet. I don't even have to have a reason to go to Sam's Club. I can just go in there for an hour and be really content, just walking around, eating samples, and just, you know, I mean, anybody with me? That's just me. I joke around. I say, you know, if the zombie apocalypse ever happens, Sam's Club is where you need to be because you can live a long time inside of that fortified place, all right? Anyway, enough of that. But I was at Sam's Club a while back when I was living in Kansas City, and I'm just walking around doing my normal thing. And over the, 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 the PA system, um, there's this announcement, free knives on aisle such and such. And I don't know, I don't remember now what aisle that was, but it was an announcement. If you want a free knife, come over to this, to this aisle. And of course, you know, I'm always up for something free. And I'm like, I want a free knife. And so I walked over to, to that aisle and there was already a noticeably large crowd around this uh, table. And there was a guy standing on a platform. So he was up above. And so there was this crowd around this table. Obviously, I wasn't the only one in the building that wanted a free knife. We all came for the free knife. But in the middle of the crowd, there was this man standing up, and he had a little headset on, and he was talking, and in front of him, he had all kinds of fruits and, and vegetables and a variety of other things. He was a salesman, and he was selling these knives. And after about a minute of listening to his presentation, I thought, oh, I, this is one of those things. I got to stand here for 15 minutes, and then the, the knife is probably one of these real flimsy little things that I, I'm not going to do that. And so I began to, to walk away and to go back to my normally scheduled routine of eating free samples and walking around. And I hear him say, these knives are the sharpest knives in the world and they'll never go dull. And it was almost like stopping your tracks. Oh, well, I got to see that. And so I walked back to his presentation and for the next 10 minutes, I watched him take one knife and he sliced tomatoes perfectly and he sliced carrots and he sliced all of these things with the precision of, uh, of a highly trained chef. And then, but then I'm thinking, you know what? Any knife can cut through tomatoes. That's not a big deal. And he goes, how about this warm piece of bread? Do you guys think it will cut through there? And you know, when I cut bread, usually I squish the whole thing down before it cuts. So he takes the same knife and just slices these perfect slices. That's pretty impressive. And I said, but a lot of knives will cut bread. Um, but I thought, you know, there's got to be more to it than that. And then he said, do you want to know what's really amazing about this knife? He said, it will even cut through metal 
and it will not go dull. And he pulls out a hammer. Maybe you've seen some of these presentations. A hammer that you can buy at any hardware store. And he puts it right where the tomato juice and all the other stuff have been cutting. And he takes that knife and he starts sawing on the hammer. And we're like, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. That's awful. And literally, I, I kid you not, he starts to cut a groove right in that hammer. And then he, he shakes the hammer and all the metal flakes come out. And he takes that same knife and he goes, do you think I've destroyed the knife? About half the people are like, yeah, you destroyed it. And he goes, watch this. He takes out a tomato. doesn't wipe off the knife. That was kind of gross. And he, and, he just, and he just starts slicing the tomato like it was perfect. And as soon as he did that, like everybody erupted into the che- uh, to a cheer. And, and, and he goes, sharpest knife in the world, never goes dull, cuts through metal, cuts through anything. Who wants one? And like everybody, including myself, went, me. I want one of those. And then right about then, my, my wife, uh, Doubting Kirsten, walked up. And, and I said, Kirsten, you're not going to believe this. This guy cut through metal. And it cuts it. And she says, we're not getting one. And so she was like raining on the parade. Well, I got one. And we took it home. And my wife became a believer. To this day, when she asks me, we're in the kitchen, she says, would you hand me a knife? I'll hand her a knife. She goes, no, 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 no. The knife. And I always know what the knife is. It's the one from Sam's Club that never goes dull, that will cut through metal. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, honey. I meant to hand you the knife. Why? Because seeing is believing. And Thomas didn't believe it, but a week later, he saw Jesus. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. That's a loaded statement, friends. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you believe it. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. I'd like to think that when Jesus said that, he was thinking about all of us. Because I've not seen Jesus personally. I wasn't there that day. And Jesus is making this reference like, blessed are those. The the, the people that will be blessed because they haven't seen, but they made a different choice than you made, Thomas. They believed it without seeing. Seeing is believing for you, but there's going to come people, millions of people. I'd like to think this is what Jesus is referring to. Millions of people, like, like right here, that are going to be blessed. Because they, haven't, they didn't need to touch my hands and, and touch my side. They saw it without, they believed it without seeing. And I think the question that all of us are confronted with tonight is this, do I personally believe that Jesus came back from the dead? That's the question, isn't it? You know, I've asked this question many times in different ways. It's like, what do you believe about Jesus? And I'm asking in a more specific way. Do you, I don't care who's sitting by you, I don't care what your parents taught, do you personally believe that Jesus came back from the dead? See, the reality is you and I don't get an upper room experience. We'll never have it. That was for the disciples. We don't, like I said, we don't get to, to see the things that Thomas saw, the others. But do you believe without seeing that, that Jesus came back from the dead?
You know, every one of us in this room, and I think about the hundreds of people that will be here through our three services tomorrow, we're all at different places in our journey of faith. Um, I know that uh, there will be some here this weekend who would honestly admit, I don't know if I believe that. Maybe right here, I don't know if I believe that Jesus came back from the dead. I don't know if I can make that claim right now. Let me just tell you, if that's you tonight, I want to encourage you to keep coming to church. I want to encourage you to, to, let, to, to wrestle with that question. It literally is like the most important acknowledgement of your life. It's your, your salvation is connected to it. It's important to wrestle through that and to really, really believe it. It's the foundation of your faith. So if you're here, I want you to know that's perfectly okay. Just keep coming. Keep wrestling with us. Keep journeying with us. Keep reading your Bible. And I believe that eventually you'll come to the same conclusion that Thomas did. And he said, my Lord and my my God. I want to be hopefully make you very aware, and I hope you've seen this throughout our 27 chapters together. That our enemy, the devil, doesn't want you believing this truth about Jesus. He doesn't want you to believe it. He doesn't want you to believe that Jesus came back from the dead. But I believe, and what I've had to wrestle with this my own, my own I had to at some point in my life uh, acknowledge that I'm not going to have my parents' faith. I'm not going to ride their coattails. I have to decide for myself, what do I believe? And it was an incredible moment when I came to that point. I do believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I do believe that. I do. And we all have to come to that. I had to look at a lot of the, the evidence, and I'll, I'll just briefly, I could spend sermons talking about this stuff, but let me just tell you that, that if you just look at the evidence, there is enough there to come to a logical, faith-filled belief that Jesus did come back from the dead. I think about, you know, one of the things I think about when I think about that very question is just the staying power of the story. Now just think about that. The story has been in people's hands for the New Testament part for 2,000 years, the Old Testament for longer. And it's been building to this understanding of what Jesus' purpose was And I think about the staying power of this story. It has survived wars. It survived famines. It survived leadership changes. It survived all kinds of things. And this story is still here, and it's still around, and it still impacts people's lives. It still changes communities. I just think about the staying power of this, and it's still here. It's not a, a fad It's not a fading story. I think about our calendar. Our entire calendar, even though in recent years they've tried to change this, but you think about B.C. and A.D. was all built upon this man Jesus. Just think about that. The staying power of this story. I also think about all of the fulfilled prophecies. You know, Jesus, you know, when he met his disciples, when he appeared to them, he referenced this. He says, remember all the things that were written about me? Skeptics have tried to explain this away for years. For years, there was, there was this thought process. So this was one of the things that people used to try to debunk the resurrection of Jesus. They would say things, you know what? Our oldest manuscripts of the Bible, and I won't get into all that, but our oldest manuscripts, you know, they, the oldest ones we have were like after Jesus walked on the earth. So obviously, 
Obviously, they went in at some point in history and they added these little details about Jesus' life so it would appear to be prophecy. But guess what happened in 1947? Some little, little Bedouin boys um, were, were ro- roaming around some caves there in the, the promised land, and they were throwing rocks, and they heard this rock go up into a cave, and they heard some pottery break. And they went on to discover what would become the greatest discovery of the 20th century, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And if you've ever, never researched that, you just Google it sometime, you'll be amazed. And what we found is we found scrolls that, uh, of the Old Testament long before Jesus. And guess what they found in those manuscripts? Every single one of these prophecies about Jesus to the, the greatest little detail about being born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, betrayed by a friend, um, silent at his trial, uh, executed among thieves. The enemies would cast lots for his clothes. He'd be buried in a new tomb. It'd be a borrowed tomb and that he would raise from the dead. It was all in there, verified. And that tells me a lot. I actually got to see Uh, parts of the Dead Sea Scrolls um, on numerous occasions. They are fascinating, um, fascinating thing to see. To look at a piece of writing that predates the Messiah. Pretty awesome. I think about the eyewitnesses. Just even the accounts we have in Scripture and some that are outside of Scripture of people that acknowledge what was going on and that Jesus appeared to them in all of these things. And then one of the most, uh, for me personally, one of the the pieces of, of, of confirmation for me is that every single disciple except for John died a martyr's death. To me, that's really convincing. The people that knew Jesus the best, and they saw the risen Christ, preached that message to their own demise. Now let that sink in. If all the disciples, except for one, and the reason the one lived longer is just John, he he died of old age and he was exiled and there was never a drop in his faith. He just wasn't killed for it. The others were. What does that say to you? That the people that knew Jesus best died for this message. I think about James. Tradition tells us that James was beheaded for his faith. Think about Peter. Tradition tells us, and Jesus even references this a little bit, but tradition tells us that Peter died by crucifixion, and because he did not want to be crucified the way Jesus was, they what? They flipped him upside down and crucified Why would anybody go through that for a lie? Why would the disciples die for a lie? Because they didn't. They didn't die for a lie. They saw the risen Christ. They watched him die, and they watched him live again. And there were too many things that happened for them to deny any of this was true, wasn't true. So I think about the staying power of this story and how it still changes lives today. And I think about all the fulfilled prophecy and the strength of all the manuscript and the archaeological evidence. Do you realize they have never found one shred of evidence, one little piece of pottery, one coin, one writing, anything that contradicts anything in the Bible? Do you realize that? But yet they're digging up stuff. Do you know there's some 30,000 active archaeological sites in Israel right now? 
They're digging up stuff every day that confirms what the Bible says. To me, it's overwhelming. I think about the eyewitness testimonies, and I think about how all the disciples, they wouldn't die. Not every one of them would not die for a lie. And they had to answer the same question that you and I have to answer. And the resurrection causes us to ask this question. This is the question we'll have to wrestle with. Do you believe that Jesus is dead or alive? I got to visit Jesus' tomb. It's empty. What do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus came back from the dead?